Hello and welcome to this podcast from Jukebox. Almost 100 years ago, on the 6th of December 1921, the Irish people achieved their goal of Irish independence. For centuries, the Irish had sought to run their own affairs through rebelling, voting and volunteering to fight for the empire. Finally, it arrived. But why don't the Irish have their own independence today? I'm joined today to discuss Irish politics and culture by Mr. Dunn, Head of Politics, and Dr. Hendrick, uh, an English teacher, and I am Mr. Guttridge, a history teacher. So, um, Dr. Hendrick, uh, tell us uh, about your Irish background. I was born in Dublin. Uh, my mother was from Roscommon, father from Wexford. Um, I grew up in quite a sort of leafy middle class suburb. Uh, I then moved to the city centre when I was about 19, lived there for seven years, and then I moved to the UK when I was about 26, 27. Moved to London. Okay. What brought you to London? Well, long story. So I was in a band. Oh. Now, the band in Ireland, we had a record deal and then we got dropped. Then a friend of mine um, was living in London. And he said, why don't you come over here? He got me a job as a stage manager in, a, in a, a venue in Camden. Did that for a year. Then I was just fed up with that. So I wanted to, the only other thing I loved was, was literature. So I did a, a degree in, uh, in, in English and American literature. Then I ended up doing a postgrad at King College in uh, education. And then I was saying to, to Paul, I ended up in a, uh, a Catholic school in the city centre of London. So in an attempt to get away from Catholic Ireland, I ended up out of the frying pan into the fire. Uh, I'm intrigued. What was the name of the band and, and what, what part did you play? The band was it? called Neon, which is a, uh, obviously it's a terrible name. But we did play a gig with uh, uh, Joe Strummer from The Clash, mm. who said to me, uh, he said... In all, one of the many things he said was, uh, of all the years in rock and roll, it's amazing that there's never been a band called Neon. <laughs> so that's the only good thing that came out of the whole affair. And Mr. Dunn, uh, did you come across to uh, with a band or another reason? Unfortunately not. No, I did. I wasn't. But, it, but an amazingly or remarkably similar experience, actually. I was born in Dublin. Uh, both my parents are from Dublin, which would be a difference. But again, middle class, leafy suburbs, I'm exactly the same. Um, I went to university in Dublin, did a history degree, and then worked in Dublin in financial services for about 10 years. So I came across the UK in 2005 and I was 28, um, again for work, but again, very similar. I visited friends for a St. Patrick's Day weekend in 2005 over in London, had a great time. And while chatting to them over that weekend, I said, well, they were like, why don't you come over to London? Why don't you live over here? It's, it's you know, it's great. Um, and so I decided I would, and I went back and handed in my resignation on the following Monday morning and left a month later without a job. Um, I came over here and I've been here for 17 years since. But again, remarkably similar when I got into teaching, because I wasn't in teaching when I arrived, I ended up working in a Catholic school in All Hallows and Farnham. Um, as my first teaching job too. And I, I honestly, I, I do think that I probably got the job because I was an, an Irish Catholic. Same. Um, so that was, that's, you know, that's how you get into these things. It's amazing how it works, you know. Is Having, it, it's very similar again, trying to come over here, trying to get away from it. Um, and then you end up finding that actually the only 
where you can get into a job is through an Irish Catholic school. It's yeah. quite amazing. Yeah. So the, the network of the diaspora. Catholic uh, Mafia. The Catholic Mafia. Mafia. If you want something done, ask the nuns. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> Okay, so um, going back to your childhood, though, uh, when, when did you first feel? When were you first aware of your Irish heritage? I, I don't think you're ever not aware of it when you live in Ireland. I don't. I think it's not something that you. It's quite a nationalist place. I think it's uh, you would have grown up in, in you know very kind of overtly Irish nationalists and you were very aware of being Irish from the day you were born. And it, but it's how, how that manifests itself is different, I suppose. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a, kind of, uh, a, a kind of hard Irishness and a softer one. The softer one, I think, came in in the mid-90s. was massive change in terms of the country radically changed, literally overnight. I think it was, at one point, you'll know more than me, Paul, the, the richest country per capita in Europe. Yeah. And that was coming from a... Um, quite a poor country really um, and so there's a there's the kind of flag waving Irish football team uh, Paddy's Day kind of tacit Irishness then you've got this more kind of sinister um, nationalism so I went to a Catholic Christian Brothers school quite an academic school my history lessons were all about how terrible the English were not the British <laughs> the English and even I remember a vivid memory of an Irish teacher going on a rant about the English language, how phonetically it doesn't make any sense. This whole rant about you know the whole the, the whole enterprise of being English is corrupt. So there was all of that kind of stuff growing up that you were fed in 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 school, um, which I grew to have a sort of anti antipathy towards, particularly when I came over here. But the final point of the place, I, I noticed a lot of similarities with Brexit. So you have a lot of people who are sort of defined by what they're not. So a yeah. lot of people in yeah. Ireland were defined by we're not English as opposed to um, an intrinsic identity. And I, I, I see a lot of similarities with the kind of the rise of English nationalism in the last sort of five years. So, so what, what created the need for this Irish nationalism? Isn't it a proud, independent country that didn't need... No, not really. We go back to the formation of the state, which we'll get on to, I suppose, in, and the disputed nature of the formation of the state. And that's really where it all comes from. And I completely agree with and understand with that idea of the defining yourself not necessarily as Irish, but certainly as anti-English. And I grew up in a, in a background, again, I was religiously educated, so educated by the Jesuits as a, you know another faction of the Catholic Church if you like and uh, similar thing my, uh, my history teacher was from Monaghan one of the counties that borders Northern Ireland and in the Republic and, and essentially my history lessons as a history teacher when I went to study history then in university I conspicuously avoided all Irish history I didn't study any Irish history during my degree by choice because I felt it was so completely bias in favour of kind of nationalist point of view in the universities that there wasn't any point and I wanted to get out of that and one of the reasons why I wanted to get out of that very specifically was because I played cricket and rugby when I was a kid and my dad's a GAA man he played hurling and football and th that was his thing and I'm still a Dubs fan I still you know follow the football and all the rest of it but there was always an awareness in my life growing up because people would say to me that's an English game yeah. what are you doing playing an English game what's wrong with you and so you, there was absolutely that. So from a very early age, I became very aware of that kind of anti-Englishness and pushed back against it. And that's why I'm here, like, 
ultimately, if you look at it from a psychological point of view, that's why I teach at an English public school now, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, there was a conflict at home. Why did you choose rugby, cricket? It was the school that I went to. Oh, okay. They were the sports that it, that it, that it did. Um, <clears throat> I was basically, I went to a, na- a state national school, but then to a private um, school in, in Dublin, so a fee-paying school. I mean, nothing in the, you know, nothing like, it was a day school in centre Dublin, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the public school system. So it was fee-paying though. And fee-paying was outside of the nationalist idea of the yeah. state. And so those schools maintained rugby and cricket. It's where the Lent- all the Leinster rugby teams come from, Irish rugby teams come from now. There's a handful of schools in Dublin that played rugby that are very strong. And one of the schools, one of our school was a very strong cricket school as well. And I just fell in love with cricket. Good. Thank you. I'll just eat to a cough. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, I should have some water. Um, uh, okay. Um, so, but when Ireland, as you say, became one of the richest countries in yeah. Europe, they were this need for uh, sort of Irishness and, and the nationalism was, was sustained. What explains that? I think it. Uh, I think it fell away personally. I mean, I, I'm away from home for 20 years, but obviously going back every year. You have a country that was um, almost enshrined in league with the Catholic Church. Um, you'll know a lot more than me, but the, the, the Constitution, De Valera's Constitution 37, I think I'm right in saying, Paul, you know more than me, that the, 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 um, the Vatican almost signed off on it. And then you had this sort of, a country that was very um, uh, sort of dictated to by um, particularly De Valera's Catholic beliefs. I can remember the 1980s being in school and Christian brothers coming in and saying, openly saying homophobic, bigoted comments about um, being gay or, or anything that deviated from uh, a kind of Catholic view. Ironically then, Ireland ended up being an extremely, and is an extremely progressive country, maybe arguably one of the most progressive in Europe. You ended up with a, an openly gay uh, Taoiseach, Prime Minister. They overturned the uh, abortion laws. And all that's happened since sort of we left the country. So we've seen the country, and I think the, the, the idea of nationalism and particularly Catholic nationalism was a cohesive thing that kind of linked rich and poor in Ireland, you know, from kind of the 1920s onwards. Mm. So there was that, you know, cohesive element to it, but it's been roundly rejected. Another part of that is the uh, revelations about the Catholic Church and the abuse particularly of young boys and of, of unmarried mothers. So all of that, I think, meant that post-2000 in Ireland, you had this uh, rejection of the Catholic Church, and along with that, um, the, the whole notion of, of nationalism. So school children now in Ireland are getting less of this nationalist... They're getting less of it. It is still there. We need to be... Right, <laughs> you need to qualify that because it right. hasn't completely disappeared. Yeah. My sister is a national school teacher in Dublin, and so I had some interesting conversations with her. But if I if I can, I'll just add a little bit of yeah. detail into that. We talk the podcast here is about the sixth of December, nineteen twenty one, the the date that Irish independence was declared. But it's not a date in Irish history. It's not a date that we recognise at all because of the disputed nature of the start of that state. You had the the proclamation of independence in 1916 after the Easter Rising, which happened, you know, a couple of weeks before the Battle of the Somme in 1916. The British army were planning a massive offensive. 
And so the second city in the empire at that stage revolts. And so you have a huge pushback against that. The executions of those involved really turned public opinion against the British. And then you've got 1919, which is effectively um, the proclamation in 1916, the Declaration of Independence in 1919, which starts the War of Independence. And then the treaty, the signing of the treaty in December 1921, essentially is the start of the Irish Civil War. So you've got the pro-treaty side and the anti-treaty side. So one side agreeing that Northern Ireland should be part of the UK, one side completely disagreeing with that, saying they want a united Ireland. So, so the disputed nature of the start of the state means that that date itself doesn't mean anything to Irish people. So there will be no celebrations on the 6th of December. There is no Independence Day because it led to a bloody and vicious civil war. But again, if you follow that through the logic of the state, how it was set up, I mean, you had a provisional government uh, on the pro-treaty side for a few years. Then you had the Nationalists taking over under Eamon de Valera, the Republicans essentially. Um, and he wrote, he was a devout Catholic having survived 1916, one of the only people to survive 1916, a devout Catholic uh, born in New York. And he essentially wrote the Constitution of Ireland with Archbishop McQuaid, who was the head of the Catholic Church in Dublin. They basically signed off on it. And just to give you an example, I did look this up because I thought this was important. This is from the actual original Constitution, Article 41. The state recognises the home and family life gives to society a support without which the common good cannot be achieved. The state shall endeavour to support persons caring for others while the home, uh, others within the home, as may be determined by law. That is what it was changed to. But the original version was women in the home. <laughs> so the original version of the Constitution said that women were encouraged to stay at home. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First one being that we never had an industrial revolution. So when they were economically crushed in the 1920s and 30s, the state itself set itself up as an agrarian state. They wanted people to farm. So De Valera talked about women's place was in the home. You didn't go out to work. You stayed at home and you had a load of kids because they basically kept the agrarian idea going. And that was the only way that the state could essentially support itself. So when financial services came along in the early 1990s, deregulation of banking and, and all that kind of stuff, you had what I described, and Carl will totally recognize this, I reckon, the river dance moment. Yeah. <laughs> and the river dance moment, river dance kind of is the, it fundamentally changes Ireland because we now have an outward-looking nationalism as opposed to a inward, navel-gazing, Catholic-dominated nationalism. And it really is that, I mean, when do you recognise your Irishness? 1990 World Cup with Jack Charlton, you know. Yeah. I'd even say the 88 Euros. The 88 Euros, Ray yeah. put the ball in the English net. Yeah, yeah. So that was, um, I mean, that was just, you know, we talk about nationalism and celebration. I can remember being in parents' house. People running out in the, the streets, streets yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, people like cars beeping, you know, sort of a a huge event. Mm. Yeah, getting but yeah, getting one up on the old enemy kind of thing. Yeah, and and I just, I mean, ironically, of course, half the uh, the Irish team then were, were English or <laughs> Scottish, you know, and they had an English manager who won the World Cup with England. But it meant everything to Ireland. I mean, it just was because Ireland up until that point had been a disaster in terms of a football team. Um, 
so yeah, that, that's yeah. The River Dance one was huge. I, I actually, when you if you YouTube River Dance the original, and I do this mainly because I have young kids and they like dancing around, and they were saying, "Daddy, can you show us some Irish dancing?" And I YouTubed on the TV um, the River Dance, the original River Dance. It was it was essentially the halftime show at a Eurovision. So we'd won the Eurovision Song Contest the previous year, which we were very good at doing in those days. Um, and it was, in the, it was in Dublin. And there was a moment during the show when it was the halftime show, after the songs, before the voting. And uh, Jerry Ryan, and I can't remember the name of the female presenter, yeah. um, introduced this thing, written by Bill Whelan, ladies and gentlemen, Riverdance. And it was Michael Flatley mm. and Gene Butler. And it blew the house away, like the whole place, standing ovation at the end. And all of a sudden it was kind of like, there's no need to be ashamed of being Irish anymore. It literally was that. It, it, it had an effect. Yeah. Um, it was, it was a, I think, a kind of a signpost for the change in that kind of idea of what it is to be Irish. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, I went to, uh, I don't know if you went to Irish college in the summer, so I was sent to Irish college. Well, I was playing cricket, so no, I didn't. I was sent to, I was packed off um, for four weeks every summer when I was a teenager to an Irish college where you had to speak Irish. If you spoke English, you were sent home. And they were, again, very kind of nationalist. This was in, yeah. you know... The Gale Talks in Connemara, was This it? is, yeah. So I can remember we did Irish dancing. So when I saw Riverdance, I thought, well, this is like no Irish dancing I recognise. It's more like the Chippendales or yeah. sort of Die Hard meets, you know, uh, Irish dancing. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the ch it's difficult to convey the change in culture. And another thing, uh, I don't know if you'd agree with this, I've got this clear memory of my mother. Around the kind of early 90s, we we're all sitting around as a, as a family and this show called Father Ted. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's an open mocking of the Catholic Church. Yeah. And I remember clearly my mother having, kind of having stifled laughs and kind of going, oh, God, that's terrible, you know? And that was another thing that kind of blew the doors open in, in Irish culture. And again, that was a kind of a, a, a kind of international export that, that was huge. I, the Father Ted thing's really interesting. I have a lot of English friends who love Father Ted. They're massive Father Ted fans. I am a, an absolute diehard Father Ted fan. I know every single episode. I mean, I absolutely love it. And it was a guy called Dermot Morgan that did it. And Dermot Morgan was the equivalent of the Irish, kind of like Rory Browner. He did impressions of politicians, satirists. Took the idea to RTE, then the state broadcaster, and they said, absolutely no way yeah. are we going to do this. So he took it to Channel 4. And Graham Lennon wrote it, actually, um, you know, it was, was from where I was from, uh, near where I was from. But, I, but, but the point is that English people laugh at Father Ted because it's so absurd. <laughs> and it, and that it appeals to the English absurd yeah. absurdness, you know that kind of humour that they love is absurd, Monty Python esque. Um, Irish people laugh at it because it's true. Um, it's so close to the bone that you, English people just do not get it. Yeah. They don't understand how real it is, um, and that's kind of one of the fundamental differences. And that's why again things like Father Ted is really important because it shone a light on the absurdity of the Catholic Church and its position in Ireland. And it is culturally important. Yeah. It does make a difference. But, but um, Ireland has always been a very important exporter of literature and culture. What's, what has been, is now is it popular culture rather than high culture? Well, you, 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 you had a lot of, um, you had the kind of Celtic revival at the turn of the, the century. You had writers, particularly someone like W.B. Yeats, but Yeats is, is, he wasn't a Catholic. Although he wrote 
seminal poems in Irish history, like uh, Easter 1916, and he knew some of those involved in the Rising. He was from a kind of a, a sort of a D-class A Protestant Sligo background. Um, but there was a, a rich tradition of nationalism within, within Protestantism in Ireland. But a lot of Irish, um, great Irish culture was banned. It had to go elsewhere to, to kind of, you know. Joyce left Ireland in his 20s. He then goes on to write arguably the greatest uh, modernist novel, if not the greatest novel, Ulysses, which is all about Dublin, which contains incredible truths about Irishness within that novel, and we have to you know, work hard to find it. But everything he writes is in exile. It's all... He, he doesn't stop writing about it. Indeed, he was asked um, many years later, would you ever go back home to Dublin? And he said, have, have I ever left it? Um, so I think... Uh, there's there's that kind of tension between the the, the, uh, the this kind of patrician uh, Catholicism in Ireland, and then you know Joyce was a, a very radical writer. Uh, Yeats, kind of to um, a lesser extent, but Yeats was also very involved in. He was a kind of a interested in what one critic has described as hairdresser stuff, so horoscopes, uh, the, uh, the occult. He was quite interested in the Golden Dawn, um, and he he he, was, he attended seances and all that kind of stuff. Joyce, he was he, he called this movement the Celtic Twilight, which Joyce would later mock as the cultic toilette. Um, so there's that tension there between the Catholicism and Irishness. But then, of course, you have in the eighties, you've got a band like U2, for example, who are the biggest rock band in the world for sort of ten, fifteen years. Um, but in, in, in literary terms, you've got you've got this explosion around 1890 to the early part of the 20th century. Yeats, uh, Kavanagh, Kinsella. You have um, John Millington Singh. You have uh, George Bernard Shaw, and then you have, of course, uh, Joyce. And, and did they export uh, a vision of Irishness, or was it because not can, compared to people who how many people listen to you too? There was a small audience, didn't really shape anything, didn't change anything, and they were a bit irrelevant at the time. I'm just going to throw into I'm not um, uh, obviously I studied English in school because we had to study English in school, and one of the, the one of the only lines of you know Irish poetry that sticks in my mind is, is Patrick Havanagh's. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, stony grey soil. soil of Bonham, so yeah. uh, when I we were in school, we had to learn this stuff for exams and stuff. And one of the the first line of stony grey soil of Monaghan is, "Oh, stony grey soil of Monaghan, you burgled my bank of youth." And it it to me just completely sums up what people felt like when they were growing up in Ireland. You were trapped. It was culturally repressive. It was grim. Um, in Ireland, you know, Dublin in the 1980s was not a nice place. It was it was a grim, run-down, grey, yeah. broken-down city with no infrastructure. And, and it wasn't, you know, effectively... Because the state was formed by people who were basically avowed illiberal Marxists. I mean, they were Marxists. The Proclamation of Independence in 1916 is, is a Marxist document in historical terms. And we talk about the common good, and it talks about overthrowing the state, the you know, shackles of the state and stuff. It... So you get this idea that the idea of freedom of choice, freedom of uh, kind of action, freedom of culture was repressed by the state uniformly for a very long time. And so when we see Joyce leaves, they all go, all the great writers leave, go away, and they write about this, trying to escape from that repression is what it is. Patrick Kavanagh sums it up perfectly. 
that's what my youth was like living in rural Monaghan. It was grey, it was bleak, it was horrible. And they were the kind of stuff that we were we were told at school, not in those terms. We were taught this in terms of, isn't he great the way he describes the rural landscape yeah. of Ireland? And I just thought it was phenomenally sad. And it's that, that's the only line of poetry from my leaving certain that has stuck in my mind forever. I mean, I, I can... It was heavily... Yeats, 1960. We were meant yeah. to learn stuff off by heart. Yeah. Interesting, I was meant to, to learn uh, Ode to Autumn by Keats off by heart when I was 10. And he's probably my favourite poet. But, you know, the, the 1916 is a much greater date in the Irish consciousness than, um, you know, the, the, uh, what we might call Independence Day. And uh, you're right, you know, it's sacrilegious. The kind of stuff we're coming out with here, <laughs> we would be we would, burning we, in we, hell. In fact, we may never. If this goes, <laughs> if this public, over, we may never be allowed back this. in. <laughs> uh, the idea that, that that those involved in the rising, who by the way, had no electoral mandate whatsoever to do what they did, these were, you know, real radicals, and particularly uh, Patrick Pierce, who in 1916 read out this. <laughs> If you can imagine the scene, goes to the uh, the GPO, which is a um, the equivalent would be sort of Oxford Street, a kind of central building, and reads out this proclamation. And people thought um, this is a drill, or they thought you know this was what is going on. Uh, hundreds of people are killed, mostly civilians, and when they're arrested, they're booed and they have stuff thrown at them by our civilians. As Paul said, it's only later when when the uh, there, there's executions carried out that there's sympathy for what, what they did. Um, just moving forward then, so we, we've got uh, we've got the 1916, the, the rising, and then there's a war of independence. Um, how how does that um, go? Do, do either side come out of that well? I think it's, it, the war of independence and the civil war from basically from 1919 to 23. So you've got the war of independence until this date. And then essentially that starts the civil war between May 22 and June 1923. And then you've got the foundation of the state. But that effectively sets the battle lines in politics for the state up until this day. So you've got the two main political parties, Fianna Gael, who are known as the pro-treaty side, and Fianna Fáil, um, who are both kind of how would you describe centre grounds? Fianna Gael slightly centre left, Fianna Fáil slightly centre right, but very moderate in terms of their political beliefs. But essentially, voting uh, takes place along those lines for the entire for the entire history. Say, my mother, for example, <coughs> my mother's family would vote Fianna Gael, and my father's family would vote Fianna Fáil, and that's just it. There isn't any. So they go into the ballot, uh, they go into the, the voting booth and go, oh gosh, I think back to the betrayal of the treaty, therefore I'm going to vote one way or the other. It, it, not necessarily, it's not necessarily a treaty thing now, I don't think, but it's certainly for my parents' generation, it was handed down who you voted for and you were on, that were the side that you were on. My, great, my, my grandfather, my father's side, for example, was interned um, as a Republican in Mountjoy Prison during the war, of, uh, during the Civil War. And it's a kind of a badge, um, you know. And but my mother's family and I would, my mother's uh, kind of father and would vote Fianna Gael. So, but there was just, that's just the way it was. It wasn't necessarily even policy based. It wasn't even necessarily you know to do with economic policy or social policy or anything like that. It was very much 
well, they couldn't be straight lying down and I wouldn't vote for them. So, so, so even for up until perhaps the last few years, voters in Ireland didn't even have much of a choice um, ideologically. True. Yeah, I'd say up until... So I mean, Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil, probably governments... We had the Labour Party. Yeah. The Labour um, Party uh, with the unfortunately named Dick Spring in the, in, yeah. the, in the 80s, I remember, had a resurgence. But they were part of coalitions. Coalition governments. They yeah. were the, always the junior partner in coalitions. And then you had a Fianna Fáil breakaway group called the Progressive Democrats, right. which really changed things up in the late, in the mid 80s. Right. And they tried to be the third, basically like the SDLP or the <laughs> Dems here, it was a very similar situation. Um, but now you have obviously the rise politically of Sinn Féin in Ireland, which is a really interesting thing. I think if you look at it politically and historically, because essentially, uh, you know, English people or the UK, British people realise them as to be the political wing of the IRA. And they are pretty Marxist as well. Yeah. Um, and they are gaining traction and popularity in Ireland politically because fatigue with the other two for so long. Yeah. Uh, this is a swap between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. You don't get anything different. So it seems to be a lot of left-wing parties. You've got the Greens, Sinn Féin, uh, Fianna Foyle <laughs> and and then but Fianna Foyle would be would be a centre right party. Yeah. Oh right. But you have to remember that we grew up in a country where the leaders of Sinn Fein, when we saw them speak on television, they were speak they, they had a narrator's actors voice, voice, actors yes. voice speaking over them. So they had this absurdity there. But you also had we grew up uh, where you ha- so you had basically four channels. Uh, we had RT one, RT two. And then you had BBC One and Two and Channel Four then came in. You also had ITV, which was UTV in Ireland. So we we grew up where every single day on the news there was there's been a shooting in this area or there's been a bombing or there's been X you know happening. Uh, two and a half three hours drive from where we lived. So we lived in uh, as you say quite a leafy kind of suburban world, but just very very close by was. Very severe sectarian violence. Um, so that I think also for for uh, Fianna Fáil um, helped kind of shape their and they were very in the eighties with Charlie Hyde, they were an extremely corrupt party as well. Um, but they stayed in power for many many years. I had the pleasure once to have a chat with a guy called Tom McGochran, who you may you may know Tom McGochran. He wrote the books about the, the foxes. Foxes, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was a politics. Um, <clears> Through <throat> my brother, actually, bizarrely enough, I had a couple of points on him in Dublin. He's retired now. He's in yeah. his eighties, but he covered the arms trial for the RTE right. in the nineteen seventies. Effectively, the idea that the Irish government, Charlie Hoy as foreign minister, were were siphoning guns to the IRA in the north of Ireland. And they were found, uh, I think they were found not guilty in the end, which obviously is a difficult uh, thing to reconcile with the state. But I talked to Tom McGochran and he, you know, he covered it at the time and he said it was just incredible. I mean, it was just incredible. In any other state in the world where you had the legitimate uh, elected government who were effectively funneling funds and arms to a terrorist organization that was fighting an ally uh, of that government, essentially. So it was a, it's a really, you know, it's a complex, it's a complex thing, but he's a, a guy who's incredibly interesting to talk to about that. Um, you know, because obviously he's retired now, he has the, the joy of being able to look back on it. But, you know, just corruption was rife 
I mean, why is it small states? countries? Often you get yeah. that. Yeah. They, everyone knows each other, play golf, they go to the same clubs or whatever. And then. Yeah, you also had, yeah. the, obviously, the, yeah, the most corrupt entity was the Catholic Church, where there was abuse being carried out in the diocese and bishops being made aware of that and simply moving that person to another area. Mm-hmm. Um, but just going back, I wonder, Paul, like, you, we grew up with the IRA and this idea of nationalism. Was there a point for you? Because there was for me. There was people who I grew up with who had a kind of tacit support for the IRA. And this, the line, what it was, was, of course, we don't condone terrorism or violence. But you can see why people would do it. And you can see why uh, th- there's a reason why Catholics in the North are getting involved in this. They're on, you know, they're uh, on a kind of every list, the Amnesty International list, um, and there was a tacit support for them. And so I can remember, uh, uh, the, I think it was the Warrington bombings. Yeah. Where there was a young boy killed. Tim. Yeah. Mm, uh, what was his name? Whose father still yeah. campaigns, yeah. yeah. I was very young when that happened, but I remember just, it was one of the first moments of my sort of youth where I said, you know what, this is, these yeah. people are monstrous. Mm. Um, but did you, did you have that at all? I had a slightly different experience, a similar thing. It wasn't a particular event, but I remember, uh, again, through playing cricket, I used to play the teams in Belfast. And so we would drive the bus up. I mean, I had an incredible experience because my cricket coach was an Indian guy. He was born in Calcutta and, you know, I'd come over to teach in Ireland and had, and he was an incredible guy. I still want to, you know, people talk about their heroes and teachers and all the rest of it. It was this guy. But he used to bring us on the bus up to play the teams in Belfast. And we'd go to the checkpoints at Newry and all the rest of it. Um, and my experience was meeting people from BRA and Belfast Royal Academy or RBAI or Campbell College who were Protestant unionists. Um, and playing cricket against them and realizing they're exactly the same as us and they're really nice guys. And I remember one particular guy from RBI called Arnie, who was the captain. And we went up one day and it was raining and he kind of just knocked on the, on the dressing room door. He said, is Paul in there? Cause he knew me. And he, I said, yeah. And I went, came out and he went like, like, none of us want to play here. The coaches are the only people who want to play. Shall we just kind of skip off for the afternoon? And I went, yeah, okay, well, let's do that. So we kind of arranged between the two teams that we didn't want to play the game. And we all went to watch the football match instead. And that was, you know, it broke down that barrier of unionism. And for me, that's what, that was one of the things that did it, was regularly visiting Belfast during the Troubles. And seeing that, actually, why are we doing this? There was, that was my, what is this for? What's it yeah. trying to achieve? I don't get it. I don't understand yeah. what you're trying to get. Here. And there's a, there's, a, there's a distinction, I think, between Protestantism and unionism. So when we were growing up, there would have been lots of people who probably would have been nationalists who were Protestants as well. In, uh, I went to a primary school that was probably a bit like Eagle House. It, it was a national uh, primary school, but it was very, had that sort of non-denominational feel. But, you know, I remember growing up and seeing all these people with white gloves and sashes and, you know, burning effigies and just being very confused by it as a child and um, a kind of a, a weird kind of trade unionism as well with it and not understanding what it was all about. I think there's a weird conflagration in Ireland that you don't get elsewhere of religion and politics that yeah. it's so intertwined. It's very like maybe in Spain, right? So maybe you get the same thing with Franco's kind of Catholic Spain. There might be that element of it, but 
it's impossible for us, or when we were growing up, to separate in our minds the Catholic Church and the state. There is no separation between those things because, again, we go back to the foundations of the state. Ireland, you know, we didn't have a military, we didn't have a voice in the world. There wasn't anything that we could say as, as a country that had been the first to basically leave the empire with dominion status. So what fills that void? And the only thing that fills that void that had the organizational capability to fill that void is the Catholic Church. They ran the schools, they ran the hospitals, they organized things. They were essentially de facto the civil service. They looked at, there wasn't a Department of Education. The press. Yeah, the press. They ran, I mean, they looked after things that the state weren't capable of providing that level of organization or logistical ability to do. And so they kind of embedded themselves and meshed themselves into this state apparatus. All the schools that we went to were all, and, and still to this day, are very religiously based. Um, you know, and hospitals, mother and baby homes. And once you have that and it's unchecked, anything unbalanced or unchecked, you know, how did this affect? So one um, part of the apparatus of state is the criminal justice system. How, that clearly did the Catholic Church have any say in that as well? Well, but legally, the jur- um, in jurisprudence terms, effectively just copied the English legal system and made a few tweaks to it. So essentially, the the justice system and the court system and that kind of thing is basically taking lock, stock, and barrel and, from and, from and, from and pre-independence. And the police were sort of independent and they were Interesting. carrying out... Interestingly enough, with the Garda Síochána, who were the Irish police, the, 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 the architects of the Free State, the pro-treaty side, made them unarmed and neutral in the Civil War. And in actual fact, uh, the IRA side said, we don't touch them. So there is an element of, the, of them being slightly more neutral. But again... Mm. Who are the Garda Síochána? They're people who grow up in rural villages who are influenced by the environment that they come from and so therefore are willing and, and able to turn a blind eye to stuff that they see that is happening because that's the who they... They're just citizens of the state, really, aren't they? At the end of the day. Um, I, I've got a, a final question, but I'm just wondering whether there's anything before that. Uh, just, I suppose, is... Are the Irish proud? They've got a sort of leprechauns, uh, shamrocks, sort of, oh, let's go to an Irish pub. Are the Irish proud of this association? Well, I think they don't really care. And I think this is kind of a, um, I think it was late 90s when you started to see this kind of paddy whackery of the highest order. So I think there was a famine theme park at one point. uh, And, you know, there was all that kind of, yeah, stuff like that. But, um, it's interesting how I mean, this term cultural appropriation is used a lot today. Um, if you were to, or if certain people were to wear uh, the costumes of, of, of certain nations, they'd be cancelled. Yet, you know, putting on the Guinness hat and the leprechaun outfit and all that kind of thing is is, 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 is absolutely fine. I, I think Irish people are, are very... Um, Unprecious about all that kind of stuff. Irish people like the crack. That you know, they're not um, likely to to get offended by all that kind of stuff. Um, but and and things like Patrick's Day now, and I mean, arguably Patrick's Day is a bigger deal in America than it is in Ireland. It's a huge event in the, in, in in New York, and again, there's a distinction between 
American kind of Irish nationalism and then the nationalism that you see um, in Ireland. But yeah, you can't be the point against it. Um, doesn't it doesn't travel? It doesn't taste. It's not the same thing, is it? It's just not the same thing. Uh, I agree. <laughs> um, and uh, for the, what about the future for Ireland? There's, there's um, Brexit and the impact of that. Oh, in our lifetimes, are we going to see United Ireland? Do we think? I think there's a possibility, politically, and not not due to any kind of Irish nationalism, but I think due to the fact that the the way that, I mean, from a political point of view, if you look at how Brexit has worked out, the, the current British government are leaving the unionist population in Northern Ireland behind. They're leaving them behind. And they're not particularly interested in defending that, um, it doesn't seem to me. So I think not due to any kind of overt Irish nationalism or push for United Ireland, but I think it may there may be much closer economic and political links between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland by virtue of the fact that the current government in the UK is really they're hanging them out to dry, essentially. They're not that interested in defending that ideal anymore. So I think it, there's a possibility, but it will happen, you know, politically. I don't think it'll be a major event. I don't think it'll be a referendum. I don't think it'll be a single moment. I think it'll be an evolving, closer coordination between the Stormont Assembly and, and, and Dublin. And I think that's the way it's just going to drip, drip, drip over the next... 10 to 15 years is the way I see it going. I think as well. I mean, ironically, I don't get the sense at home that there's any appetite for it either. As in, like... We can't really afford Northern Ireland. Ironically, all the years where there was a fervent passion for United Ireland, it looks more like, in essence, Brexit. But talking to my my family back home, no one one is pushing for it. No one's interested in that. People are interested in, in, in other things. Ireland is a European country. And so the the view of Brexit at home is just people are just aghast at what's happened over here. You know, they and they recognize a particular kind of jingoistic flag waving nationalism as well. That's probably a little bit sinister for, for people back home. But, but you know, the people I know back home friends there it's just a it's a different mindset um, than what's currently happening in certain quarters, I think, in, in, in not in Britain, but in, in, in England, you've seen this kind of rise of um, an insular uh, nationalism. And I think that in terms of United Ireland, if it, if it does come about, it'll be, as Paul says, for economic reasons um, more than anything else. Well, so the people of Northern Ireland will go... We're better served by being ruled by Dublin, and as as the, the 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 kind of the younger generation of people, they're not as steeped in that tradition. Um, it, Ireland now is a very cosmopolitan, multicultural uh, place. In a way that um, I mean, the first person of color I saw when, when I was about about ten, eleven years of age, the first time I saw someone who wasn't white. And, uh, you know, and again, there's that kind of Father Ted Irish. You'll often get people, like an Irish person will be extremely offensive in how they go about, like they'll try to make friends with that person by saying things like, oh God, where are you from? You know, all that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, so I think it'll, it'll, if it does happen, it'll be, um, it'll be an economic, but my sense is no one is interested in, in, in the Republic of Ireland. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, just logistically, if you think about it, 
It's a population of 5 million. If the South, the Republic of Ireland was to take over Northern Ireland, you instantly have the issue of how do we fund all those schools, hospitals, roads? How much taxation do we take in? We lose all the subsidies from the UK government that are currently paying hundreds of millions of pounds to keep Northern Ireland going. Um, there was always the joke in how do you know you get into Northern Ireland? Because there was never really any kind of border posts in rural areas. Well, no potholes. That was, if you drive up the north, you know you're in the north when the potholes stop. And so the idea that, you know, the Republic of Ireland would I economically want that kind of anchor around its neck for that particular <coughs> is really difficult thing. Although they, an article two and three of the constitution that expressed the idea that it should be United Ireland had been removed under the Good Friday Agreement. So I don't think it's going to be that set piece unity. But I think what you will see is a distancing between Northern Ireland and, 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 and the rest of the UK. Yeah, one example I guess would be healthcare. Very, very different, and uh, having to presumably the Northern Irish people will want free, you know, the NHS, and yeah. Southern Ireland will have to pay for that, or, yeah. or they lose it. Yeah, and, and they, they make they can't pay for their own healthcare system. It's on a knife edge, and so therefore yes. COVID and it's, the, the healthcare system is so fragile that they have to be extremely careful with COVID because they can't sustain any kind of pressure on it at all. So mm. taking in in the NHS, it's not, it's not really, it's not a reality. It's kind of an aspirational political thing, but it's not really something that could happen. So, but we could have a Sinn Féin first minister. Well, the demographic has changed in Northern Ireland. That's the other major thing as well. So the, the, the Protestant unionist majority has, has shifted. So, you know, uh, in, in, look what's happened in Scotland as well with independence. I don't know, but... It just seems again to me to be a, a, it would be a retrograde step, I think. I think one of the things that comes back to in, in politics terms is the notion of sovereignty is a very complex issue. And we, we, can we study this as well when, when we're here and talk to the students about sovereignty? Sovereignty is a different meaning for a very, a disputed sovereignty in Ireland has always been an issue. You know, what are the boundaries of the state? What does the state represent? Who are we? Do we represent everybody or just a section? And in England, you have exactly the same thing. The idea of taking back control, sovereignty. Who are we? Are we Scottish? Are we Welsh? Are we English? Are we the UK? Are we Britain? Do we, like, mm. So there's a kind of a, that disputed nature of sovereignty is going to be a really difficult thing. And I think that's what we're, where we currently are politically, where we have this disputed definitions of what sovereignty is. But I think, you know, British sovereignty, English sovereignty is a really complex issue too. Well, the story of uh, our islands is still ongoing and uh, the relationship between the two component parts. But I'd like to thank uh, Mr. Dunn and Dr. Hendrick for talking today about uh, Irish culture and history. Thank you very much and thank you for listening. <laughs>